Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 6. We've been preaching our way. There I am. <laughs> been preaching our way through the book of Acts. We are in Acts, chapter 6. We just uh, we finished Acts, chapter 5, last time, and we're continuing on in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 6, this morning. The church in Jerusalem, as we have seen it so far in the book of Acts, has been through several incredible stages. They experienced the coming of the promised Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and thousands were saved on that day as a result of the preaching, just on that one day. Then, almost immediately, we saw that Peter and John faced opposition in their ministry, particularly at the healing of the lame man at the temple. Do you remember that? This lame man that was uh, at the beautiful gate there, as it was called, uh, was healed, and he was walking and leaping and praising God and causing quite a stir in the temple, and that brought opposition from the religious leaders who commanded John and Peter not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. And since we have another 20 chapters in the book of Acts, obviously they didn't obey that. No, instead they, they said we need to obey God rather than men. So in spite of that opposition, the church grows. They have a prayer meeting. God answers the prayer meeting with an earthquake, and they prayed for boldness. They prayed for the Spirit's power, and the church continued to grow. And the many miracles were done by the apostles. A great many people were saved, and the church was unified. The church was generous. And when uh, those rose up in the church that weren't sincere or were uh, trying to pretend to be generous and pretend to be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit saw to it that the church was purified of those particular people. Last week, in the end of Acts 5, we saw once again, through opposition and persecution, that the church would grow and thrive in spite of it. All 12 apostles were arrested for preaching and healing in the name of Jesus. They were thrown into the common prison, and it wasn't a particularly good uh, experience for the religious leaders and for the council, because when they went to get them out of jail and to examine them and to challenge them, they were gone. An angel had opened the jail in the night and set them free and told them to go and preach some more in the temple. And so there were guards guarding empty jail cells that were securely locked. And in the morning, they went and found them in the temple and hauled them in front of the council uh, politely this time and again commanded them not to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. And yet at the end of chapter 5, we find in verse 42 that it said, And daily in the temple... And in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They went right on with their mission there, fulfilling their purpose. And so now we come into Acts chapter 6, which gives us a progress report of sorts of the church. And then it presents with a, to us a problem that the church had to overcome. So look at, at Acts chapter 6, verse 1 with me, and I'll read down through verse 7, and you can follow along as I do so. It says in verse 1, And in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. 
But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. This church in Jerusalem, as we have seen many times, was a spirit-filled church. It was a vibrant church. It was a thriving church. It was a church that literally saw miracles. It was the church that the apostles themselves attended. This church was full of, the, of members, think about it, this church was full of members that had seen Jesus himself. They had met him, they knew him, they had heard him preach and teach. Its preachers and teachers had been taught by Jesus himself. Where did you go to seminary? Well, I was taught by Jesus Christ. They were taught by Christ himself. This was the first church. These were the original believers in Christ. If any church were perfect, this church would have been. If any church was able to be completely free of problems, this church should have been completely free of problems. Yet, here in Acts chapter 6, we discover that the church in Jerusalem faced a very divisive issue. How is it possible that problems could arise in the church that the apostles attended, in the church that had seen Jesus Christ himself, in the church that was full of the Spirit and was seeing all of these miracles? How is it possible that problems can develop in such a church as this? Well, like all churches in history, this church was full of people. It was full of people. And people, no matter who they are or where they're from or how we, they were raised or the level of their education, people have problems. And without exception, a group of people has its problems. Nobody is perfect. We know that. Take a group of imperfect people, make them into an assembly of sinners saved by grace, and you will have problems. As one man said, don't stay away from church because there's so many hypocrites. They could always use one more. But perhaps a more accurate, albeit uncomfortable statement was made by the man that said, the chief trouble with the church is that you and I are in it. Churches are made up of people, and people have problems, and they bring those problems with them into church. Every church is going to face problems. Every church will have problems. There's just no such thing as a perfect church. If this church in Jerusalem could not be problem-free, there's no way that we'll ever be problem-free either. So what defines a church is not the problems that the church faces, but rather how the church deals with those problems and addresses those problems. The question for each of us is, when it comes to problems in the church, are we the source or the solution? Are we the source of the problems or the solution to those problems? Are you a pot stirrer 
or a peacemaker? Are you a pot stirrer or a peacemaker? How are you contributing to the spirit of this church? Do you do so positively or negatively? Here in Acts 6, we have an example of church problem solving that we can all learn from. And then notice in verse 1, the dilemma that was produced here. The dilemma produced. In those days, Acts 6.1 says, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. We have, first of all, a multiplication problem. Not arithmetic, but a problem that came because of multiplication. This was still a relatively young church. Luke does not give us any insight into the amount of time that passes between Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 6. But notice he says, in those days. He doesn't give us a specific time period that has passed, but some time has passed. Some scholars believe that the church could have been around five years old at this point. Others do not believe much time passed at all. Still, regardless, it was a young church. Luke also tells us that within that unspecified time period, the church continued to grow. Many people had come to the Lord. Many people were baptized. The church was growing. Now the church growth is exciting, and the church growth is good, and every church should desire and want and work towards seeing people saved and baptized and added to the church. But what we often forget especially those of us that have been in church a very long time or grew up in church, is that these new Christians are new Christians. All people bring to the church different personalities, different backgrounds, different customs, different baggage, and this church in Jerusalem is no exception. Here there were... Uh, overflowing. This church is overflowing with growth, and with growth came growing pains. And I'll explain deeper in a moment the cultural issue that may have been manifesting itself here in the church. But first, I'd like to remind our church here that the world that we grew up in, you grew up in, depending on the generation you're in, the world you were raised in or the world you raised your children in has changed drastically in a short amount of time. Some of you have been in church all your life, and that's great. Some of you uh, might take extra credit because your family has been in church for generations. I had an individual like that in my last church. His, he would trace his family history way back in the church, and he really took extra credit because his church had been going to this church for you know hundreds of years or something like that. And I, I believe in a family legacy, and I believe in all of those things. Those are wonderful things. Don't, don't get me wrong there, but don't let that legacy isolate you from reality. Look outside your bubble and realize that, that people that might walk through our doors today have drastically different lives than those of 50, 20, or even 10 years ago. I was talking to a pastor uh, that I know in Michigan who had an impact in my life. He's pastored there for a number of years. I think his children are around my age. So if he's not a senior citizen yet, he's getting close. But his parents were divorced when he was a kid. 
And back in that day, that was rare. So rare, in fact, that when he and his brother went to school in Detroit, they were placed in a special ed type program because they were the only children in that school whose parents were divorced. And the school viewed that as a special situation. Fast forward to the present. And a Pew Research study of 130 countries and territories shows that the U.S. has the world's highest rate of children living in single-parent households. Almost one quarter of U.S. children under the age of 18 live with one parent and no other adults. More than three times the share of the children around the world who do so. This study, which analyzed how people's living arrangements differed by religion, also found that U.S. children from Christian and religiously unaffiliated families were equal in this arrangement. It didn't matter whether or not you went to church. Almost a quarter of U.S. children live with one parent. You need to realize today that the world around us is living a drastically different life. And you need to realize that the gospel invites sinners to find hope in Jesus Christ. Don't expect people to walk through the doors with their lives put together. Don't expect people to come in here looking the part. We need to forget the facade and remember that this room is full of people, myself included, that have struggles. People that have been hurt people that have made terrible mistakes. There's a mixture of people right here in this community. You know what would do us some good? It would do us some good to go back in our family history, in our family tree, and find that first-generation Christian, the one that didn't grow up in it, the one who got saved out of it all. Uh, I heard Pastor Hovey put it well a long time ago. He was preaching, and we were here on vacation, and it was on a whole different topic, but it stayed with me. He said, This generation of Christians are pursuing the very same behaviors that I was saved out of. He's a first-generation Christian. He got saved, and he got saved out of some things. And it would do us some good to go back in our family history and find the man or the woman that got saved out of the world and remember that all of us came from that. This church isn't intended to be a bubble, and we're not to be preserving the bubble. We're to be preaching the gospel. And this world needs the hope that we can provide. And I'm not just talking about... So this is something I faced even in my, in my last church. My last church was a group of fairly diverse people, but here's what I found even in our last church. A, a family would come into church that had not been to church before. They were Christians, but they just they were out of church for whatever reason. So they bring their whole family into church. And the people that have been in church for their whole life, you know what they expected of those families? All right, I expect you to put your kids in the nursery to get them in Sunday school. I expect you to be involved in this program and this program and this program. And they ought to just plug in right away. They didn't even have an idea that we had a nursery. They had no idea that there was such a thing as a Sunday school class for their kids. They had no idea what was expected of them in church and how to sit in church and be part of church. And just keeping the church people patient with the new people was a full-time job for me. These were Christian people 
with a big family, lots of kids. And I had to remind some of my people, listen, have patience with them. They don't know this church thing is all new. They have no idea. Be patient. Today, that very same family is there every time the doors are open. But the very first Sunday they walked in, he said, you're, you're not going to expect me to show up for every service, are you? Uh, they will. <laughs> Next Sunday, they expect you to be in all the programs. No, people, they're different out there than they are in here. We have to have patience with the people that might walk through their door, these doors and realize that they're living a drastically different life, but we have the hope that they need. Back to the church in Jerusalem here. They're facing some cultural problems brought on by all of these new Christians. And what the Bible tells us is that this problem centered around the care of the Grecian widows. Now, when we read Grecians, we're tempted to think, well, these were Greeks. Uh, these Grecians, as the Bible calls them, are not really Greeks at all, but rather, as one man pointed out, these were the Greek-speaking Jews that had come to Palestine from other nations and therefore may not have spoken Aramaic, while the Hebrews, the Jewish residents of the land, spoke both Aramaic and Greek. The fact that the outsiders were being neglected created a situation that could have divided this church. It was around the Greek-speaking, the Hellenistic Jews, particularly the widows among those Jews. Widows, again, as we've mentioned time and time again in our uh, preaching here, they were particularly needy in Bible times. They're listed, if you look in the Old Testament, they're listed alongside orphans as the needy portion of the community. Why? Because women didn't pursue careers. They depended on the family structure to be provided for. They were safe within the structure of the family. And so when a woman lost her husband, her provider, it was very difficult for them to make ends meet. And so the problem was that many of these Greek-speaking Jewish widows would accompany their husbands and move back to Jerusalem in their twilight years because they wanted to die in Jerusalem. So when they got old, the husbands and the wives would move back to Jerusalem so they would have the opportunity to die there in the holy city. Well, what happens if the husband dies first? What happens was these widows were left far from their lifelong homes and families. They're left far away from their support structure, and there was no one to care for them. And they were particularly needy as a result. This was a historical and cultural problem in this day. It's also helpful to know that the differences between Jews born in Israel and Jews that came back for the feasts or to retire there were significant. These foreign Jews did not speak the language. Most native Jews did speak some Greek. It was the language of business and the language of the Romans, uh, but they didn't speak it at home. The foreign Jews spoke primarily Greek. So there was some language difference. There were cultural difference. There was differences in the customs. They would bring back customs from the lands which they came. There was differences there. They were Jewish in ethnicity and faith, but they weren't fully Jewish maybe in practice and some of the things that the Jews in Jerusalem were accustomed to. 
Paul calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? I'm 100% Jewish in every aspect. That's why he calls himself that. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. That was his, uh, as he was describing his pedigree, that was part of it. So the Grecians were Jewish by ancestry, but maybe not necessarily by culture or language. Mix the two groups together, and you have language barrier issues, you have cultural issues, and the like. So there was a multiplication problem in the church. There was also a murmuring problem. Isn't it funny? Whenever there's a problem in church, people like to talk about it. But the talk isn't typically, let's bring this to the attention of the leadership so we can get this situation resolved. It starts just like it does in Acts chapter 6. It starts quieter than that with some mumbling, some murmuring. What's funny is if you were to study the original Greek word, it's, it's a type of onomatopoeia. It almost sounds like grumbling. The problem was stirring up trouble among the congregation. The differences between the Jewish Christians and, and the Hellenistic Jews were turning into resentment. The grumbling was taking an unintentional oversight, a lack of communication, an honest mistake in the church, and turning it into a church-dividing problem. Murmuring throws gas on the coals. It fuels conflict. It spreads resentment. It seeks confidants and sympathizers. It rallies allies to its cause. It polarizes and radicalizes. There's really no place for it among Christians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Murmuring and complaining spoils the testimony of the church. How many churches have been shipwrecked over little molehill-type issues? that murmured their way into mountains. Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker both had churches in London in the 19th century. On one occasion, Parker commented on the poor condition of the children admitted to Spurgeon's orphanage. But it was told to Spurgeon that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself. So Spurgeon blasted Parker the next week from the pulpit. The attack was printed in the newspapers and became the talk of the town. People flocked to Parker's church the next Sunday to hear his rebuttal. He got up into his pulpit and he said, I understand that Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today, and this is the Sunday they used to take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take an offering for it here instead. The crowd was excited. The ushers had to empty the collection plates three times. Later that week, there was a knock in Parker's study, and it was Charles Spurgeon. And he said, you know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserved. You have given me what I needed. 1 Peter 4, 7 and 9, through 9 says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Multiplication led to the problem. Murmuring magnifies the problem. 
But ministry solves the problem. It was a ministry problem, a multiplication problem, a murmuring problem, and notice a ministry problem. There's no problem within the church that cannot be solved through love and service. The primary issue here was that there was a weak spot in their ministry. These widows were not being cared for. They were being neglected. The murmuring had not improved the problem, and it only made it worse. And the apostles realized that things had to be reorganized in the ministry in order to solve the issue that the church faced. The dilemma was real. Their solution was to delegate. It was a ministry problem. So the dilemma produced, notice in verses 2 through 7, the delegating process here. It says in verse 2, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Notice, first of all, the apostles identify unreasonable expectations. Unreasonable expectations. They could not solve this problem on their own. They already had enough on their plate. It was unreasonable for them. It was unreasonable to expect that the apostles who had been in charge of distributing to those that had need could continue in that task as the church grew larger and larger. We saw in the previous chapters that people would sell their property, sell their land, sell their assets, take it, lay it before the apostles' feet, and then it would be distributed. The church started that way. The apostles were in charge of that thing. They, were, they managed that thing. But it seems like as the church got bigger, uh, the delegating process broke down a little little bit. And so certain widows were neglected unintentionally. They'd been doing well, it seems, meeting the needs of the Hebrew widows, but the Hellenistic Jewish widows were falling through the cracks. So instead of doubling down in their efforts, the apostles sought to delegate. They could not be expected to stretch themselves even thinner. D.L. Moody used to say that it was better to put 10 men to work than to do the work of 10 men. The church was never designed to have a few people doing the majority of the work. The church was designed to have a congregation of servants who are deployed to serve the body of Christ. Far too many pastors and church staff are unreasonably expected to be all things to all people, in all situations, and in every circumstance. Far too many church members excel in devising ministries for someone else rather than seeing a need and meeting it themselves. Men were needed to meet this need. But the apostles weren't unable to take that on. They already had enough to do. 
and they made the qualifications clear of the kind of men that would take on this task. There's unambiguous qualifications here. They're very clear. They're very straightforward. These were to be men of integrity. These were to be men that were full of the Holy Ghost. One author wrote that in Scripture, to be full of means to be controlled by. This kind of man was to be controlled by the Spirit, faith, wisdom, and power. He was a God-controlled man, yielding to the Holy Spirit, a man who sought to lead people to Christ. These were to be wise men. They were to have good sense. They were men that already had these qualities. They were men that had to be obviously possessing these qualities to the whole church. These were not men that were put into a position in order to coax them to grow or given a job to try and give them a reason to be faithful and dependable. I say that because there's this school of thought out there in churches that, well, if we just give so-and-so a job to do, then they'll be faithful. Then they'll grow. But that's not the model that we find here. These were men that already were faithful and serving and spirit-filled within the church. These Christians were dependable. They were wise. They were spirit-led men of faith. And it was evident to the whole church. These were unambiguous qualifications. And notice they are unmistakable obligations here. There's unmistakable obligations. The apostles knew what their prime priority and purpose was. They were to continue to devote their time to the preaching and teaching and study of the Bible and to prayer. That was their primary uh, role and purpose. No amount of programs can replace a life of Bible reading and prayer. And the power is in the preaching of the Word of God. It's driven by fervent, consistent prayer. Five young college students were spending a Sunday in London, so they went, of course, to hear Spurgeon preach. While waiting for the church to open, they were greeted by a bearded man who asked them, Gentlemen, would you like me to show you around? Would you like to see the power plant of this church? They weren't particularly interested I mean, it was a hot day in July. They didn't really want to go down and see the boiler. But they didn't want to offend the man either, so they consented. Sure. And they were taken down a stairway. The door was quietly open, and the guide whispered, This is our power plant. And inside the room, the students saw 700 people bowed in prayer, seeking God's blessing on the church service that was about to begin. When they door was closed. The man introduced himself. It was Charles Spurgeon. Unmistakable obligations. The apostles said, listen, we can't, we can't give our attention to more ministry and more programs and let it take us away from the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and from the time we must spend in prayer. And so they couldn't do it. But then the congregation makes unanimous nominations here. Seven qualified men were selected by the congregation and brought before the apostles. So the question comes to mind, were these the first deacons? Jury's out on that. Some preachers say yes, some say no. I have 
two men that I admire very much that disagree on this one point. I encourage you to study it for yourself. I'm not convinced that these were the first deacons. First of all, they're not called deacons. Luke knew what deacons were when he wrote the book. He doesn't call them deacon. The root word we get the word deacon from is used to describe the work that they were going to do, but that's because the word deacon literally means servant, to serve. So the phrase to serve tables is the same root word as deacon, but here it has nothing to do with the office of deacon, but more with what the Jews would typically do in order to administer financial aid. One author wrote that the word table was characteristically used as a metaphor for a meal or for a table from which money would be distributed. Although the word serve comes from the same root as the noun which is rendered as deacon in English, he does not refer to the seven men as deacons, and their task had no formal name. The choice of seven men corresponded with the Jewish practice in setting up boards and councils of seven men for particular duties. Selecting seven men, another man wrote, may go back to the tradition in Jewish communities where seven respected men manage the public business in an official council. What tends to happen when we study the Bible is we read our culture into the Bible. And we forget that in Acts chapter 6, we have Jews doing very Jewish things. So it may not necessarily be the same. This church was also unique. It was in a transitional time in church history. Think about it. The church does not mention a pastor. It doesn't mention deacons yet. All of that comes later. What do they have right now? Twelve apostles. That's a very different church than what we're accustomed to. We don't see yet in Acts chapter 6 two offices represented in the church. There's no mention of a pastor. There's no mention of deacons. It's led by the 12 apostles. We don't have apostles today. In our day and age, we have pastors, also called elders or bishops in Scripture, and we have deacons. Those are the two offices that we're left with. These seven men may have been holding a temporary position for a meeting of, of a specific need. They were chosen for a very particular task, not an overall one. Second, they were temporary in responsibility because of the communal nature of the church at Jerusalem. Even so, these men do illustrate the role and the function of the office of deacons. One of my uh, pastor friends that I looked up to says, if you take Acts 6 as deacons, then basically the only duties of a deacon presented in Scripture is to give a can of hash to a widow every now and then. It's not a, a huge issue here. But what we must recall about Christian service is that this is not the office. This is not a corporation. This is not an HOA. This is not a school board. This is a church. This is a church. These men were not promoted to a position. They were selected for service. This was not an office to be occupied, but an opportunity to operate within the church. They weren't appointed to sit on the platform. They were to serve the poor. The ministries of the church requires servants, not directors or executives. These men were unanimously nominated by the church. And the apostles conferred the new ministry on them by laying hands on them. By, that was a, a show of delegating authority to these men to accomplish the work of the ministry. This was a conferring 
of authority through prayer and, uh, and asking for the Spirit's power and for filling for special service there. All seven men, it's interesting to notice, also had Greek names. This could imply that these men were themselves Hellenistic Jews, selected so as to better meet the needs of those Grecian widows. Also, be sure, as we go through the book of Acts, don't confuse Philip with the apostle of the same name. This is a new Philip, and Luke will refer to him as Philip the Evangelist. So this is a new Philip introduced to us here. So these are unanimous nominations made by the church, confirmed by the apostles, and appointed for service. And then notice now we have unhindered progression. Verse 7, immediately it says, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples was multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. The conflict is now resolved, and so what happens? Real growth takes place. God's word was unhindered by murmuring and resentment. The apostles were unhindered by additional responsibility. And the seven men, it says, preached boldly as well. The apostles, these seven men, the church, continued unhindered. You know, the devil tries to gain a foothold any way he can. He had tried in the church already. He had tried opposition. He had tried uh, insincerity among members. He had tried uh, more opposition, and now he tries division. Division is one of his favorite arrows. Don't, don't make yourself the bow. What's incredible is that the gospel was so far-reaching that many priests, the Levites, trusted Christ as well. One man pointed out that it's been estimated that there were 8,000 Jewish priests attached to the temple ministry in Jerusalem, and a great company of them trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Christianity was stirring in Jerusalem, all because this church refused to be divided. Dr. John R. Rice an evangelist was asked to conduct a, re a revival at a Baptist church in Texas. Divisions and strife had broken the heart of the pastor until he resigned and left. The county missionary, hoping to see the church revived and God's word prosper again, asked Dr. Rice to come and preach the revival services. When he arrived, he found that the whole community was divided. One or more deacons had had fist, fist fights in the quarrel. The quarrel had reached nearly every home. Many had taken a vow never to return to the little church. Dr. Rice never did find out most of the details that caused the fight, but with a burden, he preached against sin and urged God's people to clean up their lives and pleaded with them to make peace with their neighbors. Night after night, he preached, and those who had been angry at others were now angry with him. One morning, a woman in the community started to make a telephone call to tell Dr. Rice just what she thought of all of his meddling. But her 19-year-old son stopped her and said, Mom, you're wrong. I've just been out in the woods to pray, and I know that Brother Rice is right. If we Christians do not get right with one another, we can never have a revival. And I, for one, I for one am going to try to get right. And his mother didn't make the phone call. In the next service, Dr. Rice called for a time of testimony. 
And with tears streaming down her face, one woman rose to beg forgiveness of another woman with whom, with whom she had quarreled. The other woman rose and came to meet her, and they put their arms around another and wept in the aisle. Confessions came from all parts of the building, and the deep moving of God was upon the people as they began to make reconciliation, ask forgiveness, and seek fellowship again. That afternoon, the news spread like wildfire, and that night, the little church was crowded. People came to church who had not been there in months, some who had vowed they would never return again. From the very beginning of the service, the Holy Spirit was there. And Dr. Rice preached the gospel, and at the invitation, men and women accepted Christ as their Savior. Dozens of people were saved, hundreds of Christians were revived, and people came from miles to fill that little church for the rest of the meeting that would last four weeks. You know, all people have problems. All people are different, and church people are no exception. But the difference is, we have Christ. We have the Holy Spirit, which enables us to be gracious to one another. As Ephesians 4, 2-3 says, With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Colossians 3, 12-14 says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness and humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Endeavoring to keep the unity, forbearing, that does not mean conflict and problems don't happen or that we ignore them. That means we deal with them like Christians, biblically, and with a spirit of grace. And we need to remember also that the church is to be a hospital for sinners. We need to be sure not to keep out the sick. Don't murmur. Don't complain. Don't allow bitterness and resentment to poison the perfect unity of the church of Jesus Christ. Seek ways to serve. Is there a need? Meet the need. Find ways to meet the need. Lighten someone's load. Invest in this ministry. Church should not be just a few people doing all the work, but rather the entire body together serving Christ. That's what church is all about. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 6. Not a perfect church, but a church that dealt with their problems biblically, and the gospel was not hindered. Let's bow our heads this morning. I don't know how the Lord has spoken to you in particular from this passage, but I trust that He has, and we want to give you the opportunity to do business with Him. As Hannah starts to play for us, you take this time and you respond to however He's led you this morning.